You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Staring at the familiar knots in the richly grained wood of his cabin walls, Kenward wondered if this was the last day he would spend on the slippery eel. Memories of his first ship, the Kraken's Claw, flooded his mind with every sight and sound of her sinking. Wringing his hands, he prayed this was not another mistake. Katrin seemed sincere in her convictions, but escape from the harbor would be nearly impossible. Only the intervention of the gods could save him this time and he could only hope they had not lost patience with him. Though he was not usually a religious or superstitious man, he found himself walking to the rails and tossing a gold coin into the dark waters, an offering to the sea. Having done what he could do, Kenward returned to his cabin, hoping it was enough. Chapter 22. The most awesome powers are those not wielded. Enoch Geist, the first one. The journey to the center of the harbor ahead appeared endless to the crew of the Slippery Eel. The Jean ships already in port were secured for the storm, and they remained where they were anchored. It seemed no one noticed the smaller pirate ship, and nothing barred their path. Even if they had seen her, it would have taken hours for the large ships to pull up their many anchors and raise and set their sails. The Jean ships following them into the harbor were so busy contending with the storm that they had to concentrate on survival rather than pursuit. Katrin, alone for a moment, let her mind turn to a myriad of thoughts and emotions that she attempted to process. She didn't know if her friends were safe, and she felt a pang of loneliness and loss when she thought of them. When she thought of her father and her uncle Jensen, her heart nearly broke. Her thoughts flashed to memories of the animals on the farm, the horses, cats, and all her cherished companions. She hoped Salty and the other horses were in green pastures and that Millie and the other cats had found good hunting. Tears slid down her cheeks, but she stifled her grieving, knowing she would need to focus her energy on survival. She did not want to destroy the Jean or their nation, but she could not allow them to continue their siege on the Godfist, and it was clear they would take over her homeland even if she escaped. No words would deter them. They would persist until forced to leave. She wanted to end the siege without the slaughter of men she realized were only doing their duty. That thought struck Katrin like a hammer blow. These men were not evil or her enemy. They were acting on orders. Archmaster Belegra was not evil either. He truly believed that what he did was good and right and protected his nation. Even if he was wrong, he was simply as fallible and flawed as any other person. 
The actions of the Jean were precipitated by prophecies and religious beliefs that spanned thousands of years. It was as if what they did was foreordained and inescapable. The Jean believed the herald of Istra would descend on them and attempt to destroy them. When she looked at things from their perspective, Katrin realized they perceived her as the embodiment of some ancient evil, as the reincarnation of a legendary adversary, and it was their duty to protect their families and their nation from imminent destruction. She figured most of the Jean would seek high ground once they secured their ships. Rage burned in her belly when she imagined soldiers waiting out the storms at her family's farm. She felt an intense sense of personal violation, but pushed it aside. Such self-indulgence would have to wait. In a universe filled with possibilities, she knew some solution must exist. Battle with the Jean seemed inevitable, but she could see no way to defeat such a superior force, even with all the people of the Godfist. The Jean ships provided them food and mobility, and those things would allow them to starve out those trapped in the cold caves and the master house. The ships were the key. Without them, the Jean would be stranded and lucky to survive the winter. Food was limited on the Godfist, the land barely supporting the current population, and the fields were untended due to the siege. The master house and the cold caves each had large stores of food and water, and though their food supplies were limited, they had proportionally more than the Jean would have if deprived of their ships. Destroying a fleet was not something Katrin would have ever thought herself capable of, but she had to consider the events that led to this moment. She thought of the explosion that saved her from Peton's staff and the storm that ravaged the Great Oaks. She remembered her actions on the plateau and the staggering effects of her power. Her abilities were undeniable. The striking of the artesian well proved her ability to accomplish previously unthinkable things when she used Istra's power. The storm, bearing down on the harbor, drove enormous swells toward land, and ships strained against their anchors. Katrin considered the storm, which was the biggest threat and possibly her greatest source of power. Whenever she reached for the comet, the energy seemed to form a spinning vortex and she had the same sense of spiraling energy from the massive storm. Stepping back, she tried to look at her world objectively and to shed her preconceptions. The comet and other heavenly bodies gave evidence of unimaginable size and distance. The shapes in the sky had one common factor. They were all spherical. The godsland was a sphere, Katrin realized and it, too, was spinning. She reveled in her intuitive realizations, as if shedding overly tight skin. The sphere, she realized, was the primal shape of the universe. As she extended her senses toward the storm, she felt the atmosphere spinning. It was a vertical column of air, sheared by the rotation of the planet itself, just as her tendrils of energy had been sheared. 
insight and understanding, albeit limited, gave Katrin an added measure of confidence. She realized the mechanics of this universe could be used to her advantage. Waves continued to batter the slippery eel, the winds making it difficult for the crew to work. The motion of the ship became increasingly violent, threatening to send Katrin over the railing. Nearly everyone else had gone below decks, and they were taking turns cranking the bilge pumps. Massive swells forced the bow underwater, and the ship took on water as fast as the crew could pump it out. Katrin had to stay on deck to carry out her plan, and she would need to remain standing. Grabbing a coil of rope from near the helm, she looped it around herself and the mainmast, creating a crude harness that she hoped would keep her in place. Alarmed shouts from the crew interrupted her thoughts. Those remaining on deck pointed wildly out to sea. Katrin saw only the wall of water at first, but when they crested the next wave, she saw two Jean ships heading straight for them. She guessed they were among the ships that had been pursuing them, and they seemed intent on finishing the job they had started. The two ships were dangerously close to one another, and Katrin was shocked to realize they were actually chained together. Men leaped from one ship to the other. Some made the jump, but many fell to their deaths. Other men scrambled across the massive chain that hung between the ships, but the chain would suddenly go slack, then, just as suddenly, snap taut again as the ships moved closer together and farther apart on the waves. Katrin watched in horror as men were thrown into the air. Their actions made no sense to her at first, but then she came to a harsh realization. They were evacuating one ship because it was on a suicide mission. She guessed they would leave a few men on board to control it, to make sure it rammed the eel. A direct hit at their current speed could very well sink both ships, but the Jean had ships to spare. Activity on the deck of the eel became intense as men scrambled to mobilize the ship. They might not be able to evade the approaching ship, but they wanted to get the anchors raised, so the other ship might only push them out of the way. No more men attempted to abandon the suicide ship, and the chain was released during a brief slackening. The mostly unmanned ship continued to bear down on the slippery eel, while the other turned aside sharply. As the eel's crew hastily secured the anchors and ran for cover, Katrin braced herself and reconsidered the wisdom of tying herself to the mast, but there was no time left to escape. The Jean ship rode atop a huge wave, towering above the slippery eel, and it appeared to Katrin as if the ship suddenly dropped from the sky. The initial impact rocked the eel, and Katrin's head smacked against the mast, leaving her stunned. Seemingly unstoppable, the Jean ship slammed into the aft side of the deckhouse, easily pushing it out of the way. The supple wood flexed and groaned barely withstanding the incredible force. The slippery eel rolled under the massive weight, and Katrin heard wood snapping just before she struck the frigid water. Struggling against the ropes she herself had tied, 
she grew frantic, having been underwater for what seemed a very long time. The ship rose suddenly and righted itself, tossed by another wave. Katrin hung limply against the ropes and tried to get her breath. Above the sounds of the storm, she could clearly hear Vertuk praying as he worked the bilge pump like a man possessed. Shrieking winds left no doubt that the massive storm had arrived and was engulfing the harbor. Katrin knew she had missed her chance to act before the full force of the storm struck, even as she knew she was drawing energy from it. Tied to the mast, she had to endure the high winds and brutal, stinging rain. The crewmen were all focused on their tasks of trying to drop the anchors again, but they were hampered by the buffeting wind and waves. They looked as though they had suffered injuries, probably from the violent motions of the ship, and they moved slowly and deliberately. Some were bleeding heavily and appeared to be in pain, but persisted in trying to do their jobs. The ship rose high into the wind, which pushed a huge swell toward shore. The massive wall of water rushed on inexorably, with an awful roaring sound accompanied by deafening cracks and snaps. Many of the Jean ships were torn from their moorings, and as Katrin watched, they began to float aimlessly, some crushed against the rocks, others smashed to bits against other ships. The anchors of the slippery eel dug into the harbor floor once again, and the ship groaned as it faced the storm. The swells grew so massive that the ship was nearly pulled under by the weight of her own anchors as she crested the tallest waves. A huge piece of sail and rigging hit Katrin, and she couldn't tell which ship it had come from. She was uninjured except for a gash across her forehead. Blood began to run into her eyes, clouding her vision, and she used the tail of her shirt to wipe the blood away. Hours passed, but the storm continued, unabated. Then the winds suddenly died and the sky cleared. A surreal calm set in as the eye of the cyclone moved over the harbor. Katrin looked up into the night sky and was astonished to see five comets amid the stars three of which were little more than small dots with tails, but the other two were large and bright. The crewmen moved around the deck quietly, trying to take advantage of the brief respite. They all knew the way these storms behaved, and that the other side of the storm was yet to come and would likely be worse. Using large hunks of rope soaked in tar, they temporarily patched the holes in the damaged hull. Katrin, please come below decks. You'll be killed out here, Kenward said as he passed her. I'll be fine here. Are there any clean bandages? she asked. Kenward retrieved one for her and applied it to her wound. How is the crew holding up? she asked. He sighed. They've taken some pretty hard licks, but they have to keep working despite their injuries. They are good, strong men, and they'll heal quickly. Bryn's awake and complaining a lot, so I'd say he'll be fine as well. Thank you, Kenward. I have to tell you that what I'm about to try will be risky, but I must try to save us, she said. I have faith in you, he said simply. 
As she turned to face the harbor, she saw men scrambling to take advantage of the short lull to try to prevent further damage to their ships. She drew a deep breath and opened herself to the intense energy surrounding her. Armies of the Jean Nation, behold, she said in her most powerful voice, which was amplified by the power running through her. You bear witness to the call of the Herald, and she calls you not to war, but to peace. She paused, then continued. You came here to defend yourselves against one who had no intentions of destroying you, and by your very actions you have brought about your own fears. I bear no ill will toward any of you, but I cannot allow you to lay siege to my homeland. She paused again as her words hung in the air. Without your ships, you will have no food. You will have to choose between peace and death. You'll not survive a winter on the Godfist without the help of her inhabitants. I declare the armies of the Jean disbanded. All of you are now citizens of the Godfist, whether you wish it or not, and I'll not wage war with you she said, pausing again for her final statement. The Jean ships, however, are forfeited, and I will destroy them. If you wish to see the dawn, abandon your ships now. Her words hung in the air, echoing in the distance. Without another word, she reached toward the largest and brightest comet in the sky. The cyclone wall was rapidly approaching, and she had to act. Power and pleasure washed over her as energy flowed through her tingling body. Tendrils of energy reached toward the comet, the spinning of the planet causing them to shear and spin. A massive vortex of energy and swirling colors formed in the air above her. Wind thrashed and churned the water about the ship and Katrin expanded her vortex to envelop the ship and keep it within the relative calm of the center. Her senses heightened. She could feel the immense energy pent up in the storm. The clouds were highly charged and seemed to be searching for a place to release their abundant energy. When she cast her senses over the ship, she perceived a massive negative charge and the result was as if the clouds and the ship reached toward one another, seeking balance. She could almost see a strand of negative energy reaching from the mast to the sky, and she shuddered as she realized one was also extending from her own head. Casting about the harbor, she found a web of negative filaments rising from the Jean ships as well. Targeting the closest one, She reached out to its largest thread of negative energy, which rose from the mainmast. Her connection to the ship created an almost visible link between them, a thread of gossamer stretching into the night. She fed the negative energy to the Jean ship, and the tendril grew more distinct and extended higher into the sky. The clouds reached down with their positive charge, yearning for ground. A bolt of lightning suddenly completed the arc with a furious discharge. Up close, it resembled a plummeting fireball with a life of its own, and it struck the Jean ship with a fury, engulfing it in flames. 
The lightning was not spent, though, and it leaped along Katrin's thread of energy, racing toward her. She broke her link with the ship, and the lightning split apart, dissipating. Balls of fire cast waves of intense heat over her, only to fizzle and disappear before they reached her. All of this occurred within a fraction of an instant. Her energy vortex raged on, unabated, and the eye of the wall was nearly on them. As the winds pounded against her power, they were forced aside and sheared off, causing them to spin wildly. The intense rotation spawned monstrous waterspouts that thrashed violently through the harbor, tossing ships about like children's toys. Several waterspouts became tornadoes as they left the water and moved over dry land. Katrin sought more Jean ships, but the high winds and rain had returned with the other side of the cyclone wall and obscured her vision. Determined, she reached out to them with her power alone, casting her energy over the water, feeling her way to the ships as if her power were an extension of her fingers. When she sensed the wooden sides, she knew she had found a target. Her energy cast about the ship and located the mainmast. She attached a thread and fed it negative energy. Within a short time, lightning pounded her target and illuminated the spectacle for all to see. She released the link more quickly this time, but the bolt of lightning still came perilously close to reaching her, daring her to try again. Massive hail fell from the skies, pounding the ships mercilessly, and Katrin tried to target ships that were less damaged. Soon, the entire harbor appeared to be afire, and despite the driving rain, the fires spread and intensified. Katrin noticed a nearby ship which was largely undamaged, and reached out to it, calling the lightning to do her will. Too late, she realized the slippery eel had also built up a massive negative charge. Looking up, she saw a fireball racing along a jagged course. It slammed into the mainmast, and she was helpless to protect herself as it descended on her. It struck with a force greater than anything she had ever imagined, and the ropes securing her were vaporized, along with much of her hair and clothing. She fell to the deck, stunned and smoking, her energy vortex collapsing. Darkness overwhelmed her. When Katrin opened her eyes, she was lying face up on the heaving deck. Disoriented, she had difficulty focusing her thoughts. She was about to pull herself back to the mast when a bizarre phenomenon occurred. Hundreds of fish, large and small, rained from the sky. It was a dangerous spectacle, and Katrin was struck in the leg by an enormous jellyfish. The gelatinous creature exploded on impact, and its stinging tentacles caused intense pain. Reaching the mast, she wrapped her arms and legs around its base and held on. Flames danced amid the rigging, but the fire was quickly extinguished. Exhaustion overcame Katrin. Her mind and body screamed for rest, 
but if she relented, she knew all aboard the slippery eel would surely perish in the powerful storm. Forcing herself to concentrate, she worked to re-establish her protective energy vortex. When she reached for the comet, though, the exertion was just too much in her weakened state. Struggling to hang on to the mast and remain conscious, she closed her eyes and squeezed herself tight around the mast. The carved fish dug into her chest where it still hung on its leather thong. She had forgotten about it, and it gave her enough hope to try again. She pulled the carving from her shirt and lifted the thong over her head. Placing the small fish in her palm, she wrapped the thong around her fingers. With the carving firmly secured, she tried again to create a vortex. The carving grew warm in her hand as she drew on it, and she reached into the night sky. Heavy water vapor in the air thrashed her vortex wildly as it tried to form. Katrin poured herself into the vortex, straining with everything within her, she fed the vortex with every emotion she contained. Fear, anger, resentment, joy, and love all went into the shimmering funnel. It fluctuated and wobbled around her, liquid veins of color dancing across its surface. But it finally established itself and became organized. As the vortex grew, chaos ensued throughout the harbor as more waterspouts were spawned and lightning picked its own targets. The vortex provided some protection from the storm, but not all dangers would be so easily held at bay. Katrin was nearly knocked loose from the mast when another ship crashed into them. It had broken loose from its moorings and was now being tossed around the harbor. It rammed against the eel several times before finally breaking free sent spinning toward shore by the driving winds. The carved fish had grown hot in her hand, but she continued to draw on the energy reserves it provided, determined to protect the ship and its men from further damage. It was obvious the ship was wounded, because she had begun to list to one side, but Katrin could hear the crew still working the bilges, and she prayed the eel would remain afloat. The relentless storm pounded them for what seemed an eternity, putting Katrin's endurance to the test. She lost feeling in her limbs and her mind grew fuzzy. She could no longer remember why she needed the vortex so badly, but some part of her held on tenaciously. Only when she felt a hand settle on her shoulder did she become aware of her surroundings again. The dawn had come. The storm passed, and still she held on to the dwindling vortex. Once fully convinced she no longer needed it, she released the energy and slumped forward. Her body was leaden, and her heart seemed weary of beating. The hand was still on her shoulder, and she looked up to find Nat looking at her with extreme concern. He had risked himself by reaching through her vortex to touch her. Are you well? he asked as he wrapped her in a thick blanket. I don't think so. What did this to you? he asked. Lightning, she responded, unable to elaborate. As her senses returned, she felt intense pain in her right hand. 
and she opened it slowly. The leather thong was still twined around her fingers, but as her hand opened, the fish carving crumbled into dust. Instinctively, she knew she had lost something far more important than a simple carving or even a mighty tool. She'd destroyed something precious and irreplaceable. The flesh of her palm was covered with tiny blisters, and when she concentrated on it, the pain was overwhelming. She would have collapsed on the spot, but she saw the rest of the crew hurriedly preparing for their departure. The crew repaired what damage they could, and the slippery eel soon began limping toward open seas. I want to go back. I want to go home, Katrin said. Do you think they will welcome you? Nat asked, shaking his head. Do you think peace can so easily be achieved? I think not. Your countrymen have already declared you a witch, and were ready to turn you over to the Jean. And what of the Jean? You may have declared them citizens of the Godfist, but you also sentenced them to a hard winter here. You stole from them their only way home. He placed his hand on her shoulder to soften the blow of his words. No, Katrin, you cannot go home now. I see dark days ahead on the Godfist, and I fully expect there to be unrest, if not civil war. But even if none of this were true, I would still urge you to seek out knowledge that cannot be found here. I know little of your power, but I know one thing for certain. If you do not find a way to better control your gifts, then they will be the instruments of your destruction. In the silence that followed, Kenward shifted uncomfortably and waited for Katrin to respond, but she did not. Do you want me to take you home? He asked, earning a glare from Nat. I do, she responded softly, her eyes downcast. But I cannot go back. Nat is right. I must go to the Greatland and seek out the Cathurans. I must learn to control my power. It's what Benjen wanted. It's what my father would want. Kenward nodded and returned to his work. Nat put his hands on Katrin's shoulder and turned her to face him. I know this is hard for you, and I know it's not what you desire, but you do what is right. Katrin walked to the bow of the ship in silence. She took one last look at her homeland, knowing she might never see it again. Only when the godfist had dwindled in the distance did she pull herself from the heart-wrenching sight and shuffle to her cabin. Just as she was entering the deckhouse, one of the crew shouted in alarm. In the distance, the slippery eel's sister ship appeared on the horizon. The Jean had captured the stealthy shark during their raid on the pirate's cove, and no doubt they now planned to use her to their advantage. The shark appeared to have less damage than the eel and was moving swiftly toward them. Katrin's will and energy were spent. She climbed into the hammock and tried to think of a way to evade the ship, but her muddled thoughts were indistinct, and she fell exhausted into a deep sleep.
Epilogue Premendals crouched in the drainage ditch, waiting for the Jean patrol to pass. Acrid smoke still hung heavy in the air, stinging his eyes and irritating his throat, making him fear he would soon be coughing. Debris from the storm littered the ditch, and he pulled as much as he could over him, trying to make himself invisible. He assumed these men were still loyal to General Dempsey, since they still marched in formation, and there was no one he recognized in the group. The defectors were with the followers of Wendell Volker, since the masters refused to accept any of them. With tensions rising between the masters and the rebels, as Wendell's followers were called, the mysterious presence of the tribes of Argast only increased the uncertainty of the situation. How they had come to be allied with the rebels was still a mystery. Spying on the rebels had yielded little new information, but Premen was determined to use every morsel to his advantage. His plain looks had been a handicap when he was an ambitious young man struggling to gain status, but now his appearance was a benefit. Few took notice of him, and even fewer knew his name. Getting back to the master house was proving to be more difficult than ever before, as the Jean patrolled constantly, seemingly intent on maintaining control over the docks and shipyards. This was not an entirely bad thing, for when the Jean repaired their ships and left the Godfist, he would be free. For the moment, though, he was content to wait. While it was still dark, Premen hauled himself out of the mud and trash and crept to the foul-smelling sewer grate he'd told Pete and Ross about. Looking around to make sure no one was nearby, he removed the broken bar from the grate and set it inside. Even with the bar removed, he had to squeeze through, and he was bruised and scratched by the time he got down into the sewer. He replaced the broken bar and picked up the torches and flint he'd stashed there several days before. The stench was overwhelming, and he struggled to breathe. By the time he reached the drain that led to the upper halls of the master house, his sense of smell was gone, and the powerful odor no longer bothered him. The steep climb to the upper halls was an even worse part of the journey, but he suffered through it, thinking of the future. A place of power awaited him, and it would all be worth it. Using one of the many service tunnels to gain access to the master house, Premen made his way to the appointed place without being seen. Once within the darkened room, which was little more than a closet, he waited. He was sleeping when Master Edling finally arrived, and Premen struggled to pull himself from his stupor. Don't you ever bathe? Master Edling asked covering his nose and mouth with his hand. Stealth has its price, Premen said, shrugging. What have you found out? Premen thought for a moment before he replied. The rebels plan to take back the farmlands 
in the highlands and leave Harbiton to you. How very kind of them. I've heard talk of settling the Jean defectors in the upper Pinook and Chinopa valleys. It seems they're willing to give away our lands to the enemy, Premen continued. Master Edling appeared lost in his own ruminations, and Premen pressed on, hoping to gain any advantage he could. General Dempsey's men have already repaired one warship, and they're scavenging materials to repair more. From what I've heard, they plan to pursue the Volker girl once they have three seaworthy ships. The deserters will be left behind. Master Edling watched Premen, but showed no reaction. There is one other thing, Premen continued, his lips curling into a sneer. Wendell Volker sleeps in an unguarded room near one of the shafts that allow fresh air into the cold caves. Does he now? Master Edling said, raising his eyes to meet Premens. It would be a pity if he were to die in his sleep, especially with no one to inherit his lands. Premen could not keep the smile from his lips. Indeed he said, a plan already forming in his mind. Acres of farmland were far from enough to satisfy him, but it was a beginning. This concludes Call of the Herald, Book One of the Dawning of Power Trilogy. Thank you for listening. For more information, and additional downloads, please visit brianrathbone.com. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.